Welcome back to the Max Out Show, where today I'm joined by our very first repeat guest, world-renowned speaker and author, Michael Gelb. If you haven't checked out the first episode, we had an epic time discussing his work on creativity with the Rolling Stones and how to think like Leonardo da Vinci. And so today we're in for another treat as we'll be discussing his new book, Mastering the Art of Public Speaking. So Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Great to see you again. I'm so excited to have you. And so this is really a very personal topic for me because I have, you know, like many of our listeners suffered from glossophobia for most of my life. So can you share with us, you know, what the hell this term actually means and why it derailed so many people from achieving their dreams in life? Well, the term glossophobia is a fancy term for fear of public speaking. Glossa refers to the tongue. So it's the fear of making your tongue <laughs> articulate. But it, the reason it's so common is first of all, it's, it's something that most people ha have witnessed. They've witnessed someone being embarrassed in front of a group. Maybe you're just a little kid in school and you raised your hand and you said something and everybody laughed and people just think, I don't want that to happen again. So it's, it's, it's universal. It's the number one fear in survey after survey in the book of lists. Public speaking is the number one fear. Death is seventh on the list. But I, that means most people would rather be dead and buried than have to give a eulogy. Right? But if you put it that way, you, you'd give the eulogy. So but the first thing to understand is that since 74% of people suffer from this, it's it's something that's understood by most of your audiences. It's okay to be frightened. It's okay. That's the, you know, the first step. The, the subtitle of the book is transform fear and supercharge your career. So the, before you transform the fear, it's important to just accept it, to notice it and recognize that you're in really good company that, some of the world's greatest public speakers, some of the top actors and actresses, singers, have had stage fright and they've learned to overcome it. So the first step is just to accept it and to notice it and don't think there's anything wrong with you. You're actually in the majority of people. And what that also means is audiences are quite understanding of someone who seems a little bit nervous. What they're not understanding about is somebody who's completely wasting their time. <laughs> so that's why when people come to me and say, I wanna be a public speaker, I say, well, do you have something actually valuable to talk about? Because <laughs> if you don't, go back and have some, some experience, learn something valuable, then we'll talk about it. It's just the same thing if you say, I wanna write a book. Well, do you have something to say? So if you don't have something to say or something to write, you should be nervous. Yeah. Don't speak. Don't <laughs> speak quiet. You know, if you can't improve on the silence, zip it and work on having something to say. But, and it doesn't mean you have to have everything all worked out. But if you put your heart and soul, your passion into something that you care about, if you feel that what you want to talk about is something that can genuinely help your audience, then your audience is going to have a lot of patience, a lot of sympathy and empathy for you, and you're on the path to being really successful and improving every time you speak. And that's, that's what we take you through in the book is, the steps of that journey and how to make it fun and enjoyable, both for yourself and the audience. But it starts with really, really simple. It's okay to feel fearful and then focus on, well, what is it I actually want to say? Have yeah. a message, have a purpose. And then it's amazing. You know, I, I say everybody has butterflies. The secret is to get the butterflies to fly in formation. 
And when you know why you're speaking to somebody, the butterflies start to organize themselves. You know, I love this so much. So before we dive deeper into really how to clarify that message, how to get those butterflies flying in the right direction, like where does that fear actually come from for most people? Like, is it fear of rejection or like where, where do you see most of those fears, you know, come from? Because we're all like, you know, we can walk in the woods on our own and like sing out loud or under a shower, right? But then somehow as soon as there's, you know, three people in front of us, we shut up. Yes, well, it, it is the fear of embarrassment and the fear of being rejected by the tribe. And I say tribe because this fear, it's, it's not really a neocortical fear. It's not really logical. It is the limbic system of the brain and the reptilian system of the brain, the brain stem and the midbrain, which are monitoring our sense of survival and they're monitoring our sense of being accepted by the pack, by the group, by the tribe. So the fear is we say something and we're laughed at, we're humiliated. And even though it's not rational, we feel that we will be rejected. And then when, you, when you're out in the wilderness, and you are rejected by your tribe, then you die. Yeah. So it really is a kind of fear of death and, re and, and, and profound rejection. Most people aren't aware of all that. They just know it's irrational. They just know their heart is beating really fast. They're, they feel like they're choking up literally. Their mouth is getting cotton mouth. They can't breathe and, and they feel terrible. So. The good news is we also now understand the physiology, what's actually taking place. What are the hormones that are coursing through your bloodstream when you're in that state? They are cortisol, adrenaline, and norepinephrine. So I created an abbreviation, CAN. Cortisol, adrenaline, norepinephrine. So how do you get out of the CAN? you learn to give yourself a dose. That's another acronym I introduced in the book, which stands for dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, and endorphins. Those are the chemicals associated with being happy, with being in the flow state, with feeling in rapport and connecting and getting along wonderfully with other people. So, the whole book, one way you can think about it, the whole book is designed to get you out of the can so you give yourself a dose. <laughs> you know, I love that so much. And so to, to really take it back to sort of the start, you know, if you imagine someone that's, that's given you know, a speech to deliver, whether that's that eulogy that they're dreading, whether it's a sales presentation, whether it's a student, you know, being ready to go to class and, and hold that presentation there, what are sort of the first steps of of really defining, you know, the objective and like, like getting clear, basically that they don't waste people's time, as you said. Yes. So the first thing, as we said, is observe the fear as it arises. The second, notice that it's okay and that most people feel that way. Then reframe the can symptoms as excitement rather than terror. So you say, wow, I'm so excited about this. Because it's the same physiology, just now you've given it a different framework that lets you start thinking in a more solution-oriented way about the task at hand. Then you realize one of the simplest, most powerful principles, which is it's not about you. It's about them. It's about the audience. So let's get focused on the audience. Who's going to be there? Why are they coming? What's important to them? And then you frame the objectives for your presentation. And you do this in three steps. And I suggest that people actually write down the objectives for your presentation. What specifically do you want your audience 
to know as a result of your talk? How would you like them to feel and what do you want them to do? So when it comes to what do you want them to know, write them down, be specific, and remember the KISS principle. Keep it simple, speaker. <laughs> so take your message and consolidate it down. If you can even come up, come up with just what's the one thing at the end of your 10 minutes or 20 minutes or an hour or three hours or however long it is, if there's one thing you want to make sure people know, what is that? Write it down. So then you're really clear on why you're there and what it is you're trying to communicate. Then write down how you want them to feel. And this is a missing link in a lot of business and professional presentations. People focus on the intellectual content, but they forget that people buy on emotion and they justify with fact. They buy on emotion and they justify with fact. So how do you want them to feel? Maybe you want them to feel enthusiastic or energized or hopeful or enlivened about whatever the proposition is you're putting forward or the product that you're offering them. And what's great is we now know that emotions are contagious for better or for worse. So what do you want to catch and spread? And if you think about how you want them to feel, it's easier for you to share that feeling. And of course, what do you want them to do? And this make this really simple. I want them to subscribe to my channel. I want them to buy X units of my product at such and such a price. I want them, so a lot of times you give me a presentation, I want people to stop doing something, stop using plastic bags, if it's you know, environmental, whatever it is. What do you want them to do? There's a purpose, there's a reason that you're speaking to people, or what do you want them to stop doing? So if you think through these simple things, see, here's the problem. Because presentation is such a grave and common fear, because people don't realize that what's okay to feel that way, and they don't reframe it to excitement, and they don't write down their objectives. What's their objective? It's unconscious, and their objective is, oh my God, let me get through this without embarrassment. And that does not prepare us for excellence. So when you write down your actual objective, and objectives in terms of what do I want the audience to know, because it's about them, not me. How do I want them to feel? What do I want them to do? You will find that your nervous system is so much more organized. The cortisol, adrenaline, norepinephrine, are starting to become transformed into dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, and endorphins. And that's just the beginning. Yeah, you know what I love about it is like, like when I watch videos of you speak, like I can literally see how you're doing that, right? When like you're walking on the stage, right? And like you just portray this incredible like mix of power and like positive emotions and energy and joy that also then fills the audience, right? And I think that is just so powerful, like this idea of like getting clear on how you want to make people feel and then also like you creating that in yourself, right? Well, thank you for noticing, Max. And <laughs> Impossible not to notice it. Because, <laughs> but that's, that's why, did I, why did I write this book? Uh, I didn't just read a lot of other books about it or I didn't just work as a presentation coach, which I have done for 40 years. This is what I've done for a living for 40 years. So I, this is, what I wrote down here is everything that I apply as a professional speaker to get paid lots of money to speak to groups around the world. And what I've done is to translate it into what everybody can do just to be better at speaking, whether you're gonna be a professional or not, this is just if you need to give a speech to your local parent-teacher association, or at your church group, or to your social uh, media followers, if you do a Facebook Live thing or whatever, because all the same stuff applies in virtual modality as it does in person with people. The principles are the same, 
And it's wonderfully empowering. And the more you practice, the better you get and the more fun it becomes. And you might surprise yourself and then you too become a, a get paid to do it. And I love that, especially it's important of like just practice, just like in everything else, right? It's like so many people approach this as like, I'm a you know, speaker or I'm not a speaker. And then they try to hide from it, right? Because it is this painful and awkward feeling and people don't want to feel that, as you said, right? They just want to get through like the hour and <laughs> get it over with. But what I love about your work here is like you bring this intention um, to, to this whole area of public speaking to like how you want the audience to feel to the impact you want to have. Yes, and then you also realize, so when you have this mindset, we're talking about, I call it the professional's mindset. And even if you're not gonna be formally paid to speak, if you adopt the professional's mindset, everything happens more easily. So for example, Max, you're a pro, I'm a professional, we have a conversation, you meet a friend, you, you read an article, and you're thinking, wow, that's really interesting. I could talk about that with my audience because your, your mind is set on serving your audience. You want to have lively, interesting, fun stuff that will help them. So there's just always a part of your brain that is noticing something that might be relevant. That's what professional speakers do. That's what professional authors do. When somebody tells me a good story, I think, I can use that in my next speech or I can use that in my next article or book. So the more you do that, the more material you have and the more there's a meta dimension in every conversation, everything you read, every article, every joke you hear, because part of you is thinking, wow, I, I could use that. That's some good material. Yeah. And here's the other side of it, which is also really fun. When you start to think of yourself in this way, like a professional, you're not even as bored by bad presentations because now you know why they're bad. <laughs> <laughs> Specifically. Yes. <laughs> yes, and that's so important. I find it so fascinating what you just said about like how our brain learns to focus on our priorities, right? So like as soon as you make something a priority, whether that is public speaking, whether it's working out, all of a sudden you start going to start to focus more on that and like start to notice more about those conversations you have with people and like you're going to start to draw any things, right? And I think that is so important then to make the, the art of public speaking one of these priorities and to, to really gain those nuggets from whatever possible, you know, avenue you can get them from. And so, yes. Michael, I know you're big on mind maps. We discussed it the last time a little bit. So how can people use mind maps then? Once they, you know, they sort of, they've defined their objectives, they know what they want to talk about, they know what they want the audience to feel and do. So how do you use mind maps then to really figure out sort of how do you build that storyline of the talk? Yes, well, you make a mind map of your presentation and, and you refine it and develop it till you have a simple clockwise, couple of keywords, images. So you have all your notes, your, let's say an hour long presentation on one small sheet of paper. And what happens is because mind mapping is really a mnemonic device, it's a memory device. If I can represent what I wanna say in a speech in maybe 20 keywords and six or seven images, it's easier for me to remember what I'm talking about. I can see my whole message on one page. It's easier to stay focused. My, or, my nervous system is more organized. And the reason people get nervous is they're afraid they're gonna forget what they wanted to say when they get up in front of the group. But mind mappers don't forget because it's a mnemonic device. It's easier to remember. Plus it's more fun to generate your ideas in this way. It's more creative. It's more thinking like Leonardo da Vinci. And I will tell you, you know, I've also actually been coaching people in public speaking for really for 40 years. Yeah. And I've always taught them how to use mind maps to prepare their presentations. And over the, as, as the decades go by, obviously I pay attention to 
what are the elements of my work that have helped people the most? When people write me thank you letters or now emails or texts or posts on social media, what do they thank me for? At the top of the list, they thank me for teaching them how to use mind maps for presentations. Wow. Because, and here's especially because a lot of these people that I've coached rose up and became executive vice presidents, CEOs, chairpersons of the board of big enterprises. You know, a lot of them retired and then I've coached the next generation and now they're retiring and I'm coaching my third generation of these people. But what's interesting is as you become more important and influential, your ability to speak publicly becomes more important and more critical to your success. And what's interesting is, let's say you become the CEO. Let's say you are entrepreneurial venture takes off and now all of a sudden you're growing quickly as you become more important you can delegate to other people you can say write up this thing in my words and put it on the website but you can't delegate your public speaking and you're going to be asked to do it in front of bigger and bigger groups or you're also going to be asked just more and more to speak extemporaneously and when you know how to mind map, you have no fear of extemporaneous speaking because you know how to think on your feet. You know how to generate and organize your ideas really quickly. You've developed this confidence in your creative ability because you're used to practicing it. You, it helps you, as we talked about last time, it really helps you think like Leonardo da Vinci. So now you're applying that to generating, organizing your ideas for your speech. And then what happens is you get so good at it, people ask you to do that more and more. And then that gets associated with leadership. So if you take, if, if you have two people and their skill sets are equal, but this person is a better public speaker, this is the person we're going to ask to take on the next higher level of responsibility. So the more important you become, the more influential you want to become, the more important public speaking becomes and the more useful mind mapping to prepare your public presentation becomes. Yeah, you know, I'm super curious now, like where do you see the relationship between public speaking and more like private, like one-on-one -on -one conversations? Like, is there the same kind of influence that you can take from mastering public speaking and bring that into those one-on-one -on -one conversations with friends or family or coworkers. well i love that you that you asked that because uh, i'll just so this is the most recent book mastering the art of public speaking right a couple of years ago i wrote this the art of connection seven relationship building skills every leader needs now the truth is if it was possible to sell a book this thick in the world today, this would be a two volume, this is a two volume set. Yeah. Because the principles of personal relationship are all predicated. I call this book The Art of Connection because a big part of leadership is making connection with other people, a real connection. It's also the secret of happiness in life, make a connection with your life partner with your children with your parents with your friends with just humanity it's one of the secrets of longevity of health of happiness it's the real inner definition of success you have deep rich satisfying fulfilling connections it's also an essentially important business and leadership skill so what, what this is about is just how do you have that same connection with a thousand people all at once? The principles are the same. The, the expression of the principle is different one-on-one -on -one than one to a thousand, but the principles are the same. 
Yeah, I find that so fascinating, this, this ability, right? And like, because you've mastered both of them and it's just so obvious when I'm talking to you one-on-one or you're talking to this big stage audience, right? It's like the same kind of connection that you need to form with people, right? And almost make them feel like you're one-on-one with them and like you're talking directly to them, right? Yes. Yes, yeah. exactly. And, and see, so part of how you just did that, the dynamism of your body language, yeah. the you're moving in a way that tells me and our whole audience, wow, you know, Max is an authentic guy who really engages. You know, you're not just, oh, okay, who's my podcast yesterday, blah, blah, blah. No, that's what's great about you and, and, and our conversation, why I love talking to you and I'm delighted to be back with you again, because we can see the authenticity and you always see it in the person's body. Thank you. So, so a lot of my way of helping people is to help them develop that authentic, natural, expressive body language, which is different for every person. So you have to find yours. And then when you find it, you want to expand it because one of the differences between speaking one-on-one is if I'm just talking to you, you this gesture, really is powerful. If I'm talking to 10,000 people, I might be, you know. <laughs> you make everything. You <laughs> <laughs> learn to modulate your voice, your body language, your movement, your expressiveness to both the content of what you're saying so it fits the content and it connects with the audience you know this is so important i've been so fascinated by this this one question for years now which is like why do people listen to one person and not the other if both are saying the same thing right if the same words are kind of are coming out of both mouths why does everyone stop to listen to martin luther king for example but no one for the other person I think this, this, what you're sharing here is really the key, right? It's like yes. you're standing in that authentic, like expression of yourself physically and you're using that as a way to connect. Well, I have a, a coaching client who's a CEO and he's asked me to help him develop charisma. So I asked him, I said, let's, let's reframe that because charisma is a byproduct of presence and passion. So, so let's work on aligning your presence with your passion. Martin Luther King had an amazing presence aligned with a profound passion, a higher purpose, and complete devotion of his energy to that purpose. And he also used words really well, thoughtfully. And you'll notice Martin Luther King actually, his, if I say, it was many, many years ago, but if I ask what was his most famous line in his most famous speech, Everybody knows it. Even people who weren't born when he gave that speech immediately say, I have a dream. So here's what Martin Luther King didn't do. He didn't say, well, (laughs) we've looked at the data and it's quite clear that uh, integration will lead to better socioeconomic outcomes for Americans of all backgrounds. So I think we can safely say that if we implement a program uh, to uh, allow for greater uh, integration and uh, the passage of the civil rights bill, blah, blah, you know, nobody would have listened to him. Yeah. (laughs) But instead what he did is he said, remember what we said, how do you want to, what do I want him to know? How do I want him to feel? What do I want him to do? He wanted us to know that this was possible. That, that this was imminent and possible. How did he want us to feel? He wanted us all to feel that this, this could be accomplished 
that this was the right thing, that we could be part of something beautiful. He also was, was very strategic and very smart because he knew his audience. He wasn't just trying to get people who already believed in integration and, and civil rights. He was trying to win over a lot of people who were fearful about racial issues, basically decent people who just had unthinking prejudices. So you remember, he said, first, so he took his theme, I have a dream. And he repeated it over and over again. And he aligned his voice tonality. So he didn't just say, I have a dream. He said, I have a dream. Then he said, I'm going to the mountaintop. And you see the mountaintop. What happened on the mountaintop, ladies and gentlemen? Moses got the law. Now, who is he speaking to? People from a Judeo-Christian background. Where, and he was a, the Reverend Martin Luther King, so it's authentic. He's at the mountaintop. He said, I'm going to the mountaintop. Why? Because he repeats it again. I have a dream. And then he says, remember what he says? I see a little black child and a little white child holding hands in a, in a field. I think it was in Mississippi or Alabama. So you have to really be a hard-hearted racist not to feel your heart soften when you think of a little black child, a little white child holding hands in nature in a Southern state. So he chose his imagery, made it so outstanding you couldn't forget it, but he knows who his audience is. What does he wanna do? He wants to get the Civil Rights Act passed and this was accomplished because he applied everything that I write about it. Yeah. <laughs> I wrote it. <laughs> you know, this, this is so fascinating because so many of the principles that also I want to dive a little bit deeper and like are exactly in that thing, right? It's like this whole idea of like setting the stage, right? Of not engaging in molecule fondling, which maybe we'll get on a little bit later, right? <laughs> We're really clarifying those objectives and, and doing everything and really in the pursuit of those things, not getting lost in, in any small details, any of that. So, so can you share with us a little bit about this? this choice of words, first of all, of like, you know, what to avoid, first of all, what are those sort of big ahams and no-nos and <laughs> things we shouldn't do that you see people do way too much? And then sure. how, do we, how do we align with such powerful words like Martin Luther King and other great speakers in order to really convey our message? Yes, well, we love to go out to wonderful restaurants. And some people like to watch cooking shows that have become more and more popular on television, and then you cook yourself. And every great chef will tell you, start with great ingredients. You wouldn't go to a great restaurant or a cooking show and say, well, here's this partly rotten fish. <laughs> yeah, great start. <laughs> throw it on your plate and hope for the best. So for professional speakers or people who aspire just to be excellent public speakers, words are your ingredients. So use fresh, tasty, well-chosen words, not stale, rancid, cliches. So what this means, though, is people have to actually think about what they're saying. Yeah. <laughs> Such a tough thing, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and what that translates into is become a student of words. Develop your vocabulary. Leave out the unnecessary. When people are nervous, they say, um, ah, uh, you know. Well, um, ah, uh, you know, it's like, so I was like, whatever, because, you know, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> That's just, yeah. <laughs> Hurts to watch or listen. <laughs> But as you, as you said, if you've thought through what, if you know why you're saying what you're saying, if you know what you want to say, 
if you know how you want them to feel and what you want them to do, then you start asking yourself, what are the best words to say this in? How can I make this memorable? Really simple. I have a dream. That's unforgettable. So what's, what's your equivalent in your, in your message? Make it as simple as possible, as clear as possible. And then you repeat it so they just can't forget it. And then you create vivid imagery, like I'm going to the mountaintop. I see the children holding hands. So you, you create, you're painting pictures, you're creating imagery. So the audience is engaged. And, and another, another way of thinking about this is the fastest way to transform somebody who thinks they're terrified of public speaking into a really good public speaker is to get them off the topic of public speaking and just have them tell you a story. Have them tell you about their honeymoon or their favorite vacation or the most exciting adventure in their life or the funniest thing that ever happened to them. And all of a sudden, people are telling a story and their body language becomes more natural and they're not saying, um, ah, uh, and you know 15 times. So what if you could just figure out a story that communicates your message. Well, highly recommended. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I find this so fascinating how people, as soon as like the pressure's off, right, and like the eyes are gone, all of a sudden they start to talk, right? And this was me in the beginning. Like when I was still too scared to talk in front of like even two or three people, I'd go down to the forest and I'd just speak out by myself, right? Trying to like practice a little bit. <laughs> Because essentially it took the pressure off. And so I, I love this, this idea as yes, of finding your story in those small conversations. Find a story that's fun for you to tell, that's engaging, that makes your point. Clarify your message so that it's embedded in the story. What you don't want to do, some people tell a joke, but they don't link it to their message. Yeah. So people say, well, that was funny, but what's the point? Mm -hmm. So it's always about what you want the audience to know, feel, and do. There's another challenge, and you referred to it with my term of molecule fondling. So let's yeah. explain that for people. This is a danger for many people who are experts in their field, like the group that I was working with at the DuPont company, who are all PhD chemical engineers. And they had to present to the marketing department at DuPont. And they asked me to help them. So I put them on the video and one after the other of the PhDs got up and started talking about the molecules that they were researching. And the molecule did this. And then we looked at the molecule from this perspective. And we we're surprised that the molecule, blah, blah, blah. So I showed them the video and I asked them to put themselves in the shoes of the marketers. And the chief scientist stood up and he said, oh my God, we are guilty of molecule fondling. And what he meant of course was the tendency to talk about something that you know a lot about and just assuming incorrectly that the audience knows the same basic understanding that you have. So for example, it's very common for people to use acronyms, abbreviations, and jargon. And this is a wonderful thing to do because it's a way of bonding with the tribe, with the group. We all share the secret language of the acronym or the jargon that we've been initiated into. However, if you use that acronym or jargon with people who haven't been initiated, they don't know what you're talking about and they feel excluded and even insulted. So we learn to focus on the audience and we tune into, do they share this jargon or acronym? And a very effective thing you can do as a speaker is to welcome people into the club 
by initiating them into this jargon, into this acronym. So now they're insiders too, so you created that much more connection. So it doesn't mean you can't use jargon or an acronym, you just have to tune into the audience and make sure that they understand it. Yeah, that's so important. It seems like everything keeps going back to really understanding your audience and empathizing with them, right? Truly putting yourself in their shoes and, and trying to see things from their perspective, which I think is so key. And so there's this, this other concept they talk about, which is that like all business is show business. Yes. And we've, we've slightly touched upon before with the metaphor of the mountain. So can you share with us how, how to make this more of like a, a show that actually you know, intrigues people and attracts people and excites people rather than just a normal boring, you know, discussion? Sure. Well, if we think about, if we think about the principles of show business, what makes a hit show? Let's go back to Shakespeare since the shows that he wrote 400 years ago are being performed in 40 languages around the world now. So, or more, they're not going away. What were the principles of theater that Shakespeare understood? And what's most fascinating to me about Shakespeare, if you've ever been to the Globe Theater in London, they built the reconstruction of the original Shakespearean theater. And what's fascinating is the seats, there's a, a top level of seats, there's a middle level of seats, and then there's people standing on the ground. And the top level was for royalty. The middle level was for merchants. The lower level was for working common people. three different strata of society. Everyone laughed at the same jokes. Everyone cried at the same tragedy. Everyone was able to relate to the words and the drama and the stories that Shakespeare put into his plays. Now, what did Shakespeare always do? He always captured the whole audience's attention right from the beginning. He always repeated key themes. He always found ways to make it funny, engaging, and, and something that every human being can relate to, whatever your social status. And he always created some kind of dramatic ending to the play. So what else do you need to know? Think about how you're gonna start. What do you wanna repeat? Make it outstanding or dramatic. Get the audience involved and finish strong. That's show business. <laughs> Absolutely love that. <laughs> I think so key to really just remember of like this idea of like hooking people also right from the start and really drawing them in and constantly keeping that attention. Um, now, one of the big challenges that this whole COVID crisis brought with us is online meetings, online conversations, online presentations. So what have you learned or what can you, you know, tell people basically around like, how do you keep people engaged on a, you know, a presentation where you're just listening to someone for like two or three hours at a time? Well, first of all, is all of the principles that we've been discussing become even more important in a virtual setting and you want to set your stage. I, I've set my stage here. Yeah. This, is, this is not a fake background. These are real books. <laughs> <laughs> so just like if I go to give a presentation live, I will move the podium out of the way. I'll have the staff usually. So people can see like your body language or? Well, I'll just, in other words, yeah, I don't want to, since body language is a huge part of the effectiveness of your presentation, why would you stand behind this big block and just be a talking head? The podium makes no sense, uh, except as a place to keep your notes or your water. And it's fine to start from behind the podium, 
but if there is one, but I always have them put it on the side so it's not a, a distraction in the middle of the stage. And I always walk out from behind the podium and connect with the audience because the body language speaks a lot. So if I care about the audience, why would I stay behind this big block where they can't connect with me? If I want to engage the fullness of our connection and relationship, why would I just be a neck up that they see? It's, 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 to me, it's absurd. So I always have the podium put to the side and I always step out from behind it and I walk around and I connect with the audience. And then sometimes dramatically, I'll go back behind the podium, maybe to read them a quote from a historical figure from Leonardo da Vinci or Martin Luther King or something else, because it has a certain gravitas when you pause behind. So I'm using it as a, it's a tool for my stage but what most people do is they just accept whatever's there. They walk into the conference room and the flip chart is still up from what the last person presented and somebody else's empty Gatorade bottle is there. And they just don't take charge. So the audience, you're not as professional, you're not as commanding. So professionals, even if it's a little conference room, I, you, I clear the garbage out. I clear off the notes from the last person. I erase the board. I set things up the way I want them to be because now you're in my space. It's designed to help you have a better experience, but who feels more confident? The person who just walks into somebody else's messy, unorganized space or the person who says, no, I'm taking charge, I'm setting the stage. So same thing in virtual, you create a beautiful stage. And then when I, so I've been doing lots of Zoom keynotes, lots of presentations, seminars. I have another studio over there. And when I'm doing, if I'm doing more than an hour with people, we go over there and we do some movement. Uh -huh. I just, I, mean, I turn the computer over there. Yeah. I'm gonna show you. Yeah, uh, please, please. It's, it's, there's my movement studio. So we'll go over there and we'll do some movement so that you're not just fried from a three hour Zoom seminar. You, which is to say, if I'm doing a live program, I give you breaks. Yeah. <laughs> Why wouldn't we have breaks in this form? So it's everything is the same. And one of the secrets you learn is to give people breaks sooner rather than later. Quit while you're ahead. Give them a break after an hour for 10 minutes. They come back refreshed. They want to learn more. If you keep them for two hours, they're exhausted. When you give them the break, they don't want to come back because they don't know when they're going to get a break again. <laughs> That's one of the secrets, whether you're leading a meeting or, or running a seminar, always quit while you're ahead. It's the recency effect. Finish on a high note, it raises the energy. Then people want to come back for the next. So you're an orchestrator of energy when you are a presenter. And so you have to orchestrate the energy of people, whatever the, whatever the modality is. Yeah, you know, I love this aspect of taking agency and control over the whole like scenery, first of all, of where you go. And then also about like, how people are going to feel. So taking active care of like people's energy and thinking about like, how can I make sure that like, even if they're on a Zoom call somewhere on the other side of the world, how can I make sure they feel refreshed and energetic and they're present? Yes, yes, that's it. And, and, that, and, and that's conscious. You consciously, I want, I want people to feel energized. I want them to feel yeah. enlivened. I want them to feel enthusiastic. I want them to feel engaged. I want them to have fun. Yeah, I love that. I think that is so critical in, in really making sure that people are actually attentive throughout the whole thing. Now, Michael, before I ask my final question today, where can people connect with you online? Where can they you know, find your book and everything? Thank you so much. Michael Gelb, that's G-E-L-B. MichaelGelb.com is the best place. If you go to MichaelGelb.com and you click on resources, you'll be able to get all of the books are right there. 
And we have a new online video training program that's coming out on Thinking Like Leonardo da Vinci. There's also lots of articles and people can sign up for our free newsletter where we send lots of fun, interesting stuff and keep you up to date with cool programs that we're doing. We're doing lots of Zoom and webinar jam public sessions now that people can engage in. So Michael Gelb, G-E-L-B, michaelgelb.com is the best place to go. Love that. Now to wrap it up, what is the number one trait that you admire in great speakers? Well, I have to tell you, for me, the number one trait is humor. <laughs> Serious. <laughs> number one trait that my favorite, the hardest type of public speaking by far, the hardest type of public speaking is stand-up comedy. Yeah. Because you just have one purpose, which is to make people laugh and they're paying money and they're, you know, professional comedians, they're drinking, they have other things on their mind, they're checking their devices, their boss didn't tell them they had to be there, they can walk out at any time. And to, to stand up there and, and just make people laugh, and especially those who do it without being disgusting or mean. Uh, so I'm a huge fan of Jerry Seinfeld yeah. and he's a great study Seinfeld because you'll get a lot of what makes for great speaking. Cause what he's doing, he's just telling stories from everyday life. He's tuned into the audience because he knows that you've experienced these same simple things. And he's just reflecting back to you something from your own experience. And it's hilariously funny. Yeah. So in a way, even in a business presentation, we want to we connect with the audience in that same way. Even though our main purpose isn't to make them laugh, I will tell you this. You get your audience to laugh, they are much more open to being influenced by you. 